for Thursday, February 4th, 2021. This is Did You Wash Your Hands? We're a podcast from WABE, answering the questions everyone's asking during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm health reporter Sam Whitehead. Today, researchers with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta say there are ways schools can open safely for in-person learning while slowing the spread of the coronavirus. This is not a full green light. This is a path to safely operating schools and keeping transmission as low as possible. Peggy Honane has been working on the agency's COVID-19 response. She'll join me to discuss what the CDC has found in the last year about making schools safer. That's next. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Support for WABE's local coverage on maternal health and mortality comes from Georgia Health Initiative, whose mission is to inspire and promote collective action that advances health equity for all Georgians. Learn more at georgiahealthinitiative.org. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says multiple layers of COVID-19 intervention measures can help schools open safely in person. Peggy Honane, a researcher with the agency, recently laid out that perspective with colleagues in a piece in the Journal of the American Medical Association, and she's with me now to discuss some of the CDC's recommendations. Peggy, thanks for talking with me. My pleasure. I know the CDC has been looking at coronavirus transmission in schools for some time now. Just to get us started, walk me through some of kind of the big findings that the agency has made about how the coronavirus does and doesn't spread in school settings. So when I think back to last summer and we were rapidly looking for data about the risk of school transmission, a lot of the examples we had from other settings were concerning. We saw really rapid spread in high-density work sites like meat processing facilities, and we didn't know what we would see. We had seen a couple of large outbreaks in school settings. So we have guidance in place for strong prevention measures. And then we have worked hard to partner with health departments across the nation to really collect data as well as look at all available data to better understand the risk of transmission in schools. And as we've reviewed this data every week, there is some good news. And I think the good news that we are seeing in more settings is that with very strong prevention measures, meaning universal face mask use, keeping six foot of distance, cohorting students to minimize the number of contacts, you can operate a school safely with 
low levels of transmission. I think an important caveat, though, is that the level of transmission in the community is always going to affect the number of cases that happen among teachers, staff, and students in a school. Whether those cases are becoming infected at school or becoming infected in the community, if you have high levels of community transmission, you're going to have cases in schools that will result in students and teachers needing to be isolated if they've become infected or quarantined if they're a close contact of a COVID-19 case. I want to dig into that a little bit more because certainly it's understandable that transmission in a school is linked to a community. Schools aren't islands. But I'm also wondering if you can dig into that kind of idea of low levels of transmission. We're we're not talking about no transmission in these settings, correct? So COVID-19 is at pretty high levels in most parts of the U.S. right now. And prevention measures can help reduce transmission but it's unlikely that we would get to zero risk in a school. I do think the important news here is in the educational settings in schools, we are seeing very effective prevention measures, meaning with universal face mask use, cohorting of students to limit their contacts, and keeping physical distance between students and between students and teachers, We're seeing a pretty low level of transmission, but not zero transmission in school settings. I want to contrast that with some of the extracurricular activities, particularly activities where either these prevention measures can't be used or aren't used. And so an example of that really is the wrestling tournament. And we had a report released from CDC. And in this wrestling tournament, really saw rapid spread to both the participants and attendees in the tournament, but also to their close contacts. And this is a setting where, you know, the wrestlers are not able to maintain physical distance. It's not safe to use face masks while wrestling. So really to prioritize the education of our children, we need to focus on the in-person education settings and keeping those safe. And we may need to postpone until next year some of the extracurricular activities where we cannot effectively prevent SARS-CoV-2 transmission. I want to move on now to talk about some of these prevention measures, because you've mentioned some that I think people have heard of. Wearing face masks, cohorting, this is keeping grade levels as separate as possible. Early on, there was a lot of focus on increasing ventilation, maybe retrofitting HVAC systems in some of older school buildings. Are there any of those interventions that, say a school district or a school can't do them all, are there any of those that are more effective than others? So at this point, we are seeing growing evidence of the effectiveness of face masks, of physical distancing, of increasing room air ventilation. We need more data to really better understand the comparative effectiveness of each of these, as well as the safety of any modifications to these measures. So one question we get frequently is, does it have to be six feet of distance between students? We know that with physical space and classrooms, that keeping six feet of distance limits the number of students that can be in the classroom. Right now, the best scientific data we have 
indicates six foot of distance offers protection, but we are rapidly assessing all available data to understand what the risks would be at different physical distances. So as we learn more about that, we will continue to communicate that information out. So, you know, that would be important information for schools and teachers to know if we can make adjustments to that guidance. Well, and I ask as part of a practical question, something like retrofitting an HVAC system in a school building costs money. Providing face masks to students who might not be able to obtain them on their own costs money. So I'm just kind of wondering practically if, if it does take these levels of multiple levels of intervention to reduce transmission, what about schools who practically can't foot that bill to do that? Because no single prevention measure is going to be completely effective, it really does take layered mitigation efforts. It takes the combination of face masks, of physical distance, of good ventilation, of limiting the number of contacts. There are always going to be practical considerations of what's feasible and what's not. And CDC provides a lot of technical assistance and works with our partners to help identify the path to the best possible prevention. But it is important to have multiple layers of prevention to have the safest possible school setting for our teachers, staff, and students. Something else that the CDC has highlighted in its research on school transmission is the link to community transmission. I'm wondering if we can dig into that a little bit more Because there was something the agency said uh, very recently that schools really should be the first places to open after kind of a mass shutdown and, and the last places to close. Schools are part of this larger community and that the community itself can really do things to help keep schools safe. So talk to me a little bit more about that. Because schools are so important for our children, not just for education, but for a range of services they provide and for their physical and mental health, we do believe that schools should be the last to close and the first to reopen whenever it is safe to do so. And to maximize the opportunity for schools to be safely open, communities and schools need to work together to implement policies that can bring down community transmission levels to keep um, it as safe as possible for schools to operate. At very high levels of community transmission, there are going to be more and more cases occurring among teachers and students, and that really jeopardizes the availability of education for our students. That relationship between what's happening in a larger community, say what's happening with businesses being opened or closed, and the impact that that has on schools. Do you think that that is a connection that the people in power to make those decisions about what stays open and what doesn't, do you think they understand that? So we really encourage schools and communities to partner together. It's a partnership between education, public health, and the greater community to work on decisions that are going to be best for that community. There's not a one-size-fits-all. There's different school sizes, different school environments and rural versus urban settings. So I think it's part of a broader conversation to really help figure out how can they partner together to put in place the right policies to bring down community transmission of SARS-CoV-2 and make it as safe as possible. This won't always be easy, but the partnership and the good communication between the different stakeholders can be very helpful. 
But do you feel like, you know, maybe broadly here in the country that that's a, a partnership that's well understood and is functional? It just seems in so many situations we have seen schools and school t- children maybe not put at the first of the list when it comes to considering how communities reduce transmission in order to keep schools open. You know, as CDC um, communicates and partners with health departments across the nation, I feel like we hear a consistent message from our partners, really understanding the critical importance of having schools open for so many reasons. This is for the welfare of our students, first and foremost. It also is really challenging for parents to work when their children are not in school. There's a lot of complexities to this situation, but really do encourage good communication between the stakeholders, good conversations, and a commitment to put in place policies in the communities that prioritize in-person education and really put our children first. This is Did You Wash Your Hands? I'm Sam Whitehead talking today with Peggy Honane. She's a researcher with the CDC. We're talking about the agency's recommendations for how schools can reduce the spread of the coronavirus. A lot of the research that's been done on schools have been these case studies where researchers have say, I'm thinking of a recent one where I think there were schools in rural Wisconsin that the agency looked at. And based on what they find, they come to conclusions about the kind of guidance to make. Talk to me about the value of case studies. How generalizable are specific case studies to maybe other school settings, other community settings that that might look very different? So there are a number of lanes of evidence that we always look at here. You know, one important example was the Wisconsin example where they looked at schools for about 13 weeks that in total included, you know, five to 6,000 students and staff attending in person during a time period when they had relatively high community level transmission. They did put in place strong mitigation measures, face masks, distancing, cohorting, and they saw almost 200 cases in the schools among teachers and staff and students during that time, but only seven that they could identify related to in-school transmission. Similarly, there was a large um, study in North Carolina looking at over 90,000 students and staff um, as part of a collaborative effort that saw almost 800 community-acquired infections during the nine weeks they studied those schools, but only 32 school-acquired infections. And so any one piece of this evidence is really not sufficient to draw conclusions But as we look at one study after another and we put those pieces together, it helps increase that critical knowledge base about the mitigation measures that can keep school transmission low, as well as the relative risk of community-acquired infections compared to school-acquired infections, again here speaking narrowly about the educational settings in schools. Do we have a sense of why schools haven't been the real kind of hotbeds of transmission that a lot of folks worried that they were going to be this time last year. I mean, CDC has now said transmission can remain low here with with multiple interventions. Why was there so much anxiety, do you think, about getting schools opened? You know, it's really encouraging the data we're seeing with multiple layers of mitigation efforts that together those layers of protection are really reducing or preventing transmission of SARS-CoV-2. 
without that data, drawing conclusions about what we might or might not see in a particular setting really wasn't possible. But these findings have really emphasized that it can be done well in a school. Prevention can happen well. I think the structure and the efforts that communities and schools have pulled together on to commit to these prevention strategies, to make some of the hard decisions, which in some cases means a hybrid model so that you have fewer students in a classroom at a time so that you're limiting the number of contacts and you're increasing physical distance between the students. And, you know, when I think back to July or August of last year, we just didn't have much data to inform that and to know what the level of risk was. So, you know, together we're learning every day. It's only just over a year ago that this virus was first identified in the United States. And really, we've learned a remarkable amount so far, but not as quickly as we wanted to. And we just, we keep trying to gather this data so we make the best informed decisions possible. But we are very encouraged that this layered protection and multiple mitigation strategies together seems to be effective at reducing transmission in schools. There is an alternative universe potentially where this could have gone very poorly. I feel like a lot of talk I heard from teachers and concerned parents about sending their kids back to school was kind of feeling like lab rats. Do you understand that? Because it seems like it's only because schools opened back up that we were able to learn this encouraging news, but it certainly could have gone another way. There were no easy decisions for parents or schools or teachers or students last fall, and really there are still no easy decisions. And every parent and family has to weigh in on what is going to be best for their child It is important to have students in school because of the wide variety of services that are provided by these schools. We also want students to be safe when they're in school, and we want teachers and staff to be safe when they're in school. So uh, I understand the concerns that people had last summer and fall, and I understand the concerns they have now in both directions, you know, sort of balancing the importance of having schools open with the importance of keeping schools and students, teachers, staff as safe as possible. I can't think of a a topic that's been as hot and kind of politically tricky as whether or not schools should be open. Um, This was something that, you know, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention came out pretty strongly uh, in in advance of the start of the school year last year, recommending that schools open. I have to wonder if you worry that that harmed the general public's perspective on the agency and whether or not their their guidance was really driven by science or by this desire to just have schools open kind of regardless of whether or not we totally knew it was safe. CDC remains very committed to look at the available data and let science drive our guidance and drive our decisions. And we um, are committed to that. We do that every day in this response. And we are continuing to do that to make sure that we're reviewing the latest available evidence and we're using that to update guidance and Recognize that that means guidance is going to change and be updated over time as we learn more information. Should people in the power to make decisions consider this as a kind of green light from the CDC to open schools? Or is it more nuanced than that? 
The information we're providing really shows a path for how to operate schools safely during the pandemic if you can implement this layered protection with multiple prevention efforts and if you can prioritize those in-person education settings and postpone some of the extracurricular activities that could put those education settings at risk. These are tough decisions, but we really ask communities and schools to work together to make sure schools can be the first to open and the last to close by putting the education first, even though that will mean some higher risk activities like wrestling tournaments or other close contact sports need to be postponed. Those are two big ifs in that in that answer you just gave me. The important message is we can operate schools safely when we have the right prevention in place and multiple layered prevention efforts. It's not a green light to say that transmission doesn't occur in schools. We know that transmission can occur in schools. We've seen outbreaks in schools. We've seen clusters in schools. Um, There's no reason transmission won't occur in schools if you don't have the right prevention. So this is not a full green light. This is a path to safely operating schools and keeping transmission as low as possible, really by ensuring strong mitigation measures, face masks, physical distance, cohorting, possibly a role for testing in schools, and also postponing some extracurricular activities that could put this education at risk. Peggy Honain is a researcher with the CDC and has been working on the agency's COVID-19 response. Did You Wash Your Hands is a production of 90.1 WABE Atlanta, where ATL meets NPR. WABE's managing editor is Alex Helmick. Scott Wolfel is chief content officer. You can reach us at washyourhands at wabe.org. You can find all our episodes in your favorite podcast app. That's where you can also leave us a rating and a review. That really helps other people find the show. And you can find more stories on the coronavirus pandemic at wabe.org slash coronavirus. If you haven't recently, now might be a good time to go wash your hands. I'm Sam Whitehead. Thanks for listening. Have you donated to WAB yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wab.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.